Um, I love having a acoustic night. Different and fun and welcome again to those of you who might be guests with us. Uh, I'm Jack, one of the pastors here, and we've been in this series, as Lyle kind of alluded to, uh, called Freeway, and it's this not-so-perfect guide to freedom in the sense that uh, how many of you have realized that life is kind of messy sometimes? Hopefully you've come to that realization. If not, wait a minute, um, because it will happen, and the reality is most of life is not just clean cut and easy and, and, and simple. Sometimes it's, it's messy and complicated and, and we have a way of, of, of kind of having that put on us as well as kind of making decisions and stuff that creates that in a way. And, um, but here's what we know from the scriptures all throughout uh, history is God's kind of driving home his story that he's a God that can work even in the midst of the mess. And then so that we can experience a not-so-perfect guide to freedom, because there is no perfect guide to freedom, except looking at this life of Jesus and the life that he calls us to have with our Heavenly Father. And so we've kind of been in this series looking at some simple steps that we could take to say, how do we um, kind of minimize fear and um, the things that hold us back in life? And how do we maximize this freedom that we've been given in Christ? Now, I know you may be here, and maybe you're kind of coming back to church, and this whole idea of relationship with Jesus is like, you, you hear about it, and you go, that's a nice thing, that's good for people that want that, and, and that's cool. I'm really glad that you're here. In fact, my hope and my prayer for you is not that you would feel weirded out by this, but that somewhere along the way, maybe that you would just find this to be a community where you can put down some roots and, and have people cheering for you in life and, and have people that acknowledge you and, and love you for who you are. And maybe somewhere in here, Jesus will go more from this philosophy or this, this ideology into a reality of a, a real relationship that you can actually have life with God. And somewhere in here, I hope it clicks for you, for like for many of us, it's kind of clicked, and it's gone from this religious pursuit to this relationship thing that we have, and it's ongoing, it's life-giving to us, and that's really kind of the vision behind this church, is to be a place where those who are maybe not convinced can actually hang around with some of those who are being convinced, and somewhere along the way, you might meet Jesus, because we really think he's worth meeting. And so as we try to minimize these fears and things that hold us back and maximize this freedom that we've been given, we looked at a couple different things. In week one, we kind of looked at the prodigal son's story, and we said, hey, you know, freedom is not this idea of going out and trying to search for it. It's actually more about being found. It's more about coming home and coming home into a relationship with our Heavenly Father, that He actually knows your name, and He loves you, and He wants you to be at home in relationship with Him. And then Brandon last week did a great job. If you missed it, you can catch it online. Looking at this idea that as we come home, we're now giving a new identity and a new strength. And we looked at Romans chapter 8, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. And you can look at that too, and how do we live, and how do we actually harness that and take that on to be us? In fact, I want to pick up on that next week and talk about this idea of how we get labels and how we put labels on people? And what does the Bible actually say about how do you live out this identity we have in Jesus? But tonight I want to look about direction because freedom has a direction, friends. And the direction of freedom is it moves forward. I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life where um, maybe in the midst of the mess of life, I've made my own mistakes. I've, I've faced my own setbacks. I created my own mess, so to speak. And I don't know if you've ever sensed this in your life, but maybe in that moment, 
there's a part of you that goes, is this worth it? I mean, let's just face it. And we kind of turn inward and we look and we almost begin to, to look at ourselves and, and it's almost this self-pity that we begin to feel like, I'm just, I'm just not going to get it. You know, as much as I try and I try, I'm just, I'm never going to live. Because here's what we know. When you become a follower of Jesus, I'm speaking to those of you who are maybe following Jesus. Others of you, you keep investigating him. But for those of you who are following Jesus, maybe it comes to a point where you realize, okay, this Jesus life is awesome. And it's super cool because I get to live life with God through Jesus. And then you start actually looking at Jesus' life. And then you kind of look at your life and you go, I am so far from that. Anyone ever felt that way before? Because sometimes we get into this comparison of going, Ugh, I'm never going to get to where I want to be. And so sometimes we get this defeated feeling, this sense of, I, I, is it worth it to even go? And sometimes you can even become stuck spiritually in your spiritual journey. And I don't know if you've ever logged time there. You will. That's part of the normal process, I think, because this idea of living life with God is always about transformation. It's this process of transformation. And often we get stuck in moments when we start making it about condemnation, about I'm not good enough, or I'm not going to be able to, or these things I want to change in my life, I just can't seem to get around them. And they keep rearing their ugly head. And no matter how much willpower I put into it, no matter how much effort I put in, or how much shame I begin to try to carry around, and sometimes I try to tackle and wrestle it to the ground myself, and sometimes we can become stuck. We can get sidelined, so to speak, in our spiritual journey. And tonight, if you've ever felt that way, tonight I want us to examine a practice that we see throughout scriptures that I think will help you and helps me as I get to those moments where I feel stuck, moments maybe that I've created, and in those moments, you have a choice. I can either stay stuck where I'm at, or I can choose to put this into practice, and it actually begins to propel me forward. God is not scared or thrown off guard by your history, friend. He actually wants to propel you forward into a destiny that's grounded and founded in Jesus and to fuel you moving forward. And that's his deepest desire of his heart. Life with God is not solely about perfection. It's about this process of transformation. And there will come moments, the speed bumps of life, I'll call them, where you kind of go over this speed bump and you feel like you ground out in life. And you feel like, oh, I don't know if I can keep going. Well, freedom is a forward direction. And I want us to kind of dive into that. And it may feel a little bit heavier tonight, um, and, and that's okay. You know, sometimes, you know, just truths of the scripture are like that. But I want you to lean into that tonight because I think coming out of this can be really life-giving. For some of you, this might be a refresher. For others of you, this might be really brand new. I'm understanding this practice that we're going to look at. And I want to look at that through the life of one particular individual in the scripture. His name is David. And uh, David is the king of Israel. Now, he has a long journey. In fact, if you read through the literature of the Old Testament, you'll read a lot about David. In fact, uh, I think not just in the Bible, but in other scriptures or other, um, other texts or other uh, historical writings, the life of David has a lot of recorded about him. In fact, it's one of the lives in the ancient Near East that has the most written about him. 
And it's interesting because we kind of see a lot of his story. And if you were to follow it around and actually look through all the different texts in the scriptures and other texts as well, you would get a really well-rounded view of David from really young to really old. And we kind of follow his life throughout. And there's some things that we see, uh, some moments that are really, really awesome. Some great moments, like battle wins, right? Some moments like David and... Goliath, okay? Maybe you've heard that story. So that's like a triumphal moment. There's also some other moments that you hear and you go, is that the same dude? Like, that seems so out of character of what we read about. And that's one of those moments I want to look at tonight because in this moment for David, he has a choice. Will he kind of hit this this speed bump? And will he ground out and stay stuck in this moment? Will it sink him? Or will... He allowed God to do some work in his heart to kind of get him back propelling, moving forward. Because here's what we're saying. The premise of the whole night, freedom has a direction. And its direction is always moving forward. Your spiritual journey is meant to have next steps in it. It's not meant to stall out or stop or to stay stuck forever. It's meant to keep moving forward forward. Now, I want to look at this through one particular word that we see begin to come out of a moment for David. And I I really even, I struggled with when to say this word. Because as soon as I say this word in English, you're going to hear it and go, oh, I know what that is. (laughs) I've read about that. But the reality is it's so soft in our English language. But in, in Hebrew, It has such a deep and rich meaning to it. And it has some insights that pull things out. And and it's this word, this practice that we can engage in now when we start to feel stuck or we make decisions, we make mistakes, we we have failure moments in life that we can practice this and begin getting back and allowing God's grace to heal us up and to move us forward in our journey. This word, in a lot of ways, uh, has so much connotation to it in our day and age. And we we see people get up and do press conferences and and try to live this word out. And, And for a lot of it, we watch on TV and go, that's so fake, right? I know you don't know the word yet, but like as soon as I say the word, you're going to be like, yeah, I've seen this. Like, recent, um, we've seen this on display in press conference after press conference. And, and the word is, well, actually, I don't want to tell you yet. It's, it's the secret deep, it's kind of the secret to deep permanent change when we begin to practice this in our lives. And it's key to helping us move forward in freedom. And in fact, sometimes in life, we can get, like, we're trying to hold on to things. And here's what we know about that, is sometimes when you try to hold on to things, and we know about forgiveness, that's not the word. Um, We know about forgiveness and this idea of, I've got to get God's forgiveness, and I've got to be a person that gives forgiveness, and I've got to get forgiveness from other people. That's kind of a part of this word, but it's not the word, okay? So um, it's, it's there, and we know if we hold on to things, it keeps us from moving on, doesn't it? And so we've got to learn to let go, and we've got to learn to, to work these things. And this freedom being this forward direction, it's really important that we practice this word. David's life um, kind of puts this word on display in a lot of ways. And if you know anything about David, uh, here's what you've got to know. David's really young when he gets anointed king, right? But he's not, he doesn't become king right away. It's kind of like um, you get a bunch of tickets for... Peter Piper pizza, but you don't get to cash them in yet. 
for the prizes, which stinks, right? When you're a kid, you're like, I've got 500 tickets. That's awesome. And then your parents pull the trick like, hey, we got to go. We got to go over to that thing and do that thing. And we don't have time to, because they take forever over there to cash out. So we'll just have to come back, right? And so then you're like walking around with 500 tickets and you're like, ah, I have 500 tickets. That's kind of what's going on in David's life, okay? But bigger than tickets uh, because he gets anointed king, which is a really big deal. And uh, he's got to wait. In fact, he's so much got to wait because the current king actually brings him in and, and likes him and he's hanging around the palace. And then like something happens and suddenly he doesn't like him and he wants to take his tickets back. And so David actually has to go on a run for his life with his 500 tickets, and he's fleeing for his life while Saul is chasing him, trying to take his tickets, and by take his tickets, I mean kill him. So, there you go. Um, So it's rough. It's not easy. And so he's hiding out, and David's on the run, and he collects these these guys, these what we call mighty men. You'll read about them in the scriptures. And these mighty men are kind of like, if you were to take a UFC fighter and a special ops troop, put them together, mighty men. Okay, so that's what David collects. He collects these kind of guys who are probably shady in some ways. They've probably been kicked out of their country, and he's got them, and he's got them, and they're loyalty, right? And so they're actually have, he actually has this little army that's protecting him from Saul trying to take his tickets, which means kill him. And so that's what's going on in his life. And all throughout this whole, like, there's years of this. Like, you don't get to cash your tickets for, like, over a decade, Maybe longer. That's a long time to wait to cash in tickets, isn't it? I think that's a long time to wait to cash in tickets. Maybe you're not like that, and shame on you. Um, that's a long time to wait. And so, like, that's a long time to wait. And he's going through this whole thing. And, and eventually, David becomes king. And in Second Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to tell you the story of this part, and I want to look at chapter 12. In Second Samuel chapter 11... David's been king for a while. He cashed in his ticket. Saul is gone. He's got the kingdom. And the kingdom's experienced this amazing peace. And it's this amazing growth and exponential growth and, and stability. And it talks about in the spring when, when kings would go off to war. And here's what we know is David is a king, and he didn't go off to war. In fact, he sent his mighty men, the people that have lived life with him for a long time, been through a lot with David. And he sends him off to war. And David's bored one evening. And so he can't sleep, and he's out, and he sees this woman bathing. And that's a separate issue and all that kind of stuff, and we don't know all the logistics of culture and all that stuff. But there's something going on with her as well. And there's definitely something going on with David in this moment. And he's like, whoa, woman. Um, and he sends for her to come, and they you know, play Scrabble. Um, that's code. Um, he sends her home after Scrabble, and, um, and all of a sudden, she won the game. And she notifies him that, hey, we're, we're, I won the game, and we're pregnant. And if you have questions, talk to your parents. Um, so just don't talk to me. Um, but so Scrabble game's over. Um, they discover that they're pregnant, and David realizes hey, wow, this is Bathsheba, and um, that's actually the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's one of the mighty men who I've lived life with for a long time. And so he sends for Uriah to come back from war. Because really, in essence, that's where David should have been, but David wasn't there. And so he sends for Uriah to come back, and he kind of gets right by, and he kind of you know, puts this charade of like, hey, I just want to get a report on how it's going at the war. Uriah comes back, and he's like, 
it's great. They have tea. He's like, awesome. Um, he, I think he kind of, you know, tries to, you know, liquor him up a little bit and says, hey, why don't you go home to your wife and you guys play Scrabble and hang out and then you can go back to the war like tomorrow and that would be fine. And I'm the king and so that's good and you do that. Well, Uriah, being a, a good guy, says, look, I've got guys at war out here, so he actually you know, hangs out with the servants' quarters and doesn't go in to his own house. And so now David's got a you know, conundrum here. What do I do now? And so he sends Uriah out to the battlefield, and he sends a message to Joab, and he says to Joab, one of the other leaders, one of the other mighty men, he says, look, um, you just got to trust me on this one. I need you to put Uriah like out on the front of the battlefield, and then when the fighting gets really bad, I just need you to be like, "Hey, we got to go, we got to jet," and leave Uriah out there to die. So Joab, being the smart military leader that he is, says, "Well, I can't really just do that. That's kind of obvious. So I've got to send a small special ops team out, and they send the special ops team out, and they get wiped out." And so Joab sends this report back to David. Hey, Uriah and a few other guys have been taken out. And after a little bit of grieving period, David goes and has Bathsheba move in with him and becomes his wife, and they have a new child. And so this story seems very soap opera-like, doesn't it? Like Telemundo, um, but with English words, maybe Hebrew words. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of, it's got a lot of stuff happening, uh, a lot of scrabble going on. And so... You're kind of like, wow, this is very interesting that this is the guy, this is the same guy that we read is called the man after God's own heart. And what's fascinating about the story is what happens next. Because what happens next is one of those moments that I think happens to us. Listen, we, not, we may not play Scrabble, okay? But we make mistakes in life. We, we deviate away from maybe the best path to possibly walk, and suddenly we begin doing something else. And I know there's some commentators that look at the life of David, and as they study this life of David, that we have a rich history of literature writ- written about him. And what you begin to realize is this wasn't a one-time decision, you know, just a moment of failure. This was slowly over time. A guy with political power began to root away at his character. And he began to make little changes, like answering the phone, and began to answer and say, look, just stop calling me. I'm not going to pay that. Um, so he would have things where he would just not hold up to his end of the bargain, and he would make little decisions that would just kind of creep him away. And then suddenly he's playing Scrabble, and that's not cool. And he's having murder happen. And that's definitely not cool. And so you see this journey with David, and it's not just a one, it's all these baby steps that have been growing as a man who has had power, and it's beginning to change who he is. And he's living things out. And then this guy, Nathan, who's been, he's a prophet, uh, and a prophet was kind of the mouthpiece of God. It was someone that would lead the people of God. And Nathan has also been a dear friend to David for years. I mean, it's not like just a random dude that showed up. It was like, hey, I got a story to tell you, David. It's this Nathan guy. David knows Nathan. And in chapter 12, I want us to kind of see the story that unfolds. I want to read through this story because there's something really, really powerful. And I want us to see, okay, what did David do? That's the story I just told you. And now I want you to see what God does. Because that's the key in this whole story. What did David do? Okay, you got the history of that a little bit. 
Now, what does God do in the midst of this? What happens here? Verse 1, this is what it says. I'll just read the whole way through it here. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, listen, he tells him this story, which is an interesting story. He says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. He had all these livestock at his disposal. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, like one baby lamb. Okay, this is where you'd all go, oh, okay, baby lamb. Okay, that he had bought. Like, this wasn't something that was just like part of a heritage past. Like, he had effort, investment in this thing. He raised it, and he grew it up with him and his children. And it shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. And that's weird. Okay, but like you can see the tenderness side of this because sheep stink. Let's just be honest. If you've ever been around sheep, uh, but like he's like babied this baby lamb. Okay, this is like really dear to him. Uh, he's even slept in his arms. He was like a daughter to him. Oh, okay. We feel bad for the poor guy. Okay, now a traveler came to the rich man. So a guy comes in to travel. He's got this. Uh, he's just passing through, but he's hanging out at the rich dude's house. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal uh, for that traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the one ewe lamb, the little baby lamb. What? This is where you say, what? Okay. Um, He took the baby lamb that belonged to the poor guy, and he cut him up and prepared him as a meal for this traveler that had come. Well, at this point in the story, this is what we see David. David burned with anger against this man. He said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man should die. How dare he steal this daughter lamb from this poor guy? He's got so much to choose from, right? He must pay for this lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Unbelievable what this guy did. And David's getting ticked. And then Nathan, in probably the shortest application of a sermon ever, looks at David and says, you are the man. And in that moment, something happened. Now, what could have happened in that moment? What could have happened in that moment is David, as king, with ultimate power and ultimate rule, could have said to Nathan, how dare you accuse me of something? (laughs) And hasn't beheaded. David could have hid in that moment, right? (laughs) Oh, Nathan, you jerk. Hey guys, uh, would you escort Nathan out, uh, please? Uh, I don't want to see him ever again. And so, like, big UFC guys escort him out, and then he just kind of hides, right? But in that moment, What you read next in the story is what matters. David, Nathan says, you are that man. And in that moment, Siri tells him that, um, David, you are the man. And he responds and says, for those of you watching online, there's noises going on and some responding to that. Okay, so, um, and welcome, by the way. So in that moment, you are the man. David responds, and he says, you're right. You're right, Nathan. I've blown it. 
I'm like, I didn't even know my life was off track. Like, I kind of had an inkling. Here's what you see, is David's conscience is beginning to wake up. That's why he's burning with anger to the story. How dare there would be injustice in my kingdom and in my rule. How dare that would happen. That's not what I want it to be. His conscience is beginning to wake up to the reality of the mess he's in. And that he's been trying to hide and he's been trying to solve. And he's been trying to push aside. And in that moment, God's conviction comes to his life. And he responds with, you are right. You're right. Where in the world did I go? How in the world did I get here? And here's what we know to be true in this story. Nathan has spoken life into David in positive ways all throughout his life and his friendship with him. And in this moment, Nathan is speaking challenge into David's life. And David is beginning to wake up to that, to respond. Here's what I wrote. God has sent Nathan not to do condemning to David, but to do some converting within David. This is about converting some work within his character, within his soul. God did not send a sword to smite David, but a scalpel to begin to cut out the sin tumor that's within him and growing and gaining root strength within his heart. And so God, when he sees things in our lives, he may point some things out. See, the point of Accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior is to get grace. You never need any bit more. You have all the grace you need. It is the fuel that you will, you will live your life with. We need to live on that fuel. And what we need throughout moments is what the Bible talks about. It just Here's a big $10 you know, seminary word. It's called sanctification. And all that means is this idea that I, become, I go. Remember how we talked earlier? When you look at your life and you look at the life of Jesus and you go, I'm so far from that. And you go, how am I going to ever get? Well, that's God's job. And through the Holy Spirit, oftentimes he's going to be chipping away at some of the character traits and some of the, the natural tendencies within you to go, look, you are more now. God has rescued you and redeemed you to be more. And so let's work on some of these things. And that's exactly what's happening in David's life. And he could have ignored it. He could have hid from it. But instead he owned it. And in that moment, he practices the word. Are you ready? Repentance. That's the word. And all throughout the Bible, this notion of repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's more than that. It's coming to an awareness of something within you that you acknowledge with God is not the best for you. And maybe it didn't seem like an issue for a long time, but maybe God's at work in your heart and he's beginning to shine a light on that and he's saying, look, this is an issue. This is not the best I have for you. I have something better, but you've got to let go of this in order to go and gain and grab hold of what I have for you that's better. And so there's a lot of work that goes into this and sometimes it's really easy and sometimes it's really hard. I love what Timothy Keller writes about repentance. He says this, Repentance is killing the habits of your heart that are killing you without killing yourself. 
It's killing those habits of your heart, or those, those heartaches, those, those hang-ups within your heart, within your life, that are holding you back and sometimes keeping you stuck where you are in this life with God. Because a lot of times we seem to get stuck. I'm speaking to myself too. That we get stuck on this plateau and, and God wants to take us to something more and something better and yet we hold on to this thing. And we go, God, I don't know if I can let go of that. And he's saying, look, I want you to move forward. But to move forward, to grab hold of something better, you've actually got to let go of this. And you've got to trust me. That this is better. You've got to trust me. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, is saying, look, um, there's some things here. Freedom is about moving forward. It's about destroying the habits and healing the heartaches that are holding you back from moving forward. For repentance is not about condemnation, it's always about transformation. That was the moment for David. You are the man. And in that moment, it's a moment for the process of transformation to take a step, or it's a moment for him to pull the covers of condemnation over his head and just stay there. And in that moment, David realizes, I've got to move forward. In fact, Psalm 51 is what flows. We know so much about David in his life. Not only is he a great military leader, a leader of, of people and just organizational leadership, but a, a poet. He's a musician. Like, this dude's got it all, okay? It's just, it's, you know, you're like, ah, David. Um, he, like, he's got all these talents. And Psalm 51 is probably the best passage of Scripture that we can find in all of the Scriptures dealing with this idea, this practice of repentance. And so I want to take the rest of our little bit of time here and unpack some things, some some processes uh, of what this means to practice repentance. And here's a couple different things. Um, often our greatest flaws are hidden from us. Would you say that's true? that often some of our greatest flaws are hidden, that we do some way of either coaxing or realizing, okay, we, I'm really not that bad, and so we downplay a lot, or we kind of shift it a little bit, or we say, hey, you know, that's because of this in my life, or because of the way I was raised this way, and that's why I'm kind of like that way, and so it's really not my fault. And so we kind of shift the blame, so to speak, on some things, or we, we don't even recognize it. And what we've seen in the life of David is this guy is such a great leader. How did, how did he get so far off track? It's because of all these little baby steps that he was taking and no one noticed it in the moment and he didn't even notice it in the moment. And then this spiritual friend is sent into his life again. And Nathan not just comes this time to speak life that's positive, but to speak life about redemption or rescue and recovery. And he says, you are the man. And in that moment, David listened. He leaned into that. Here's a real simple question. Do you have some, some Nathans in your life? Because you need them. I need them. Friend, we all agree life is not perfect. We all agree that there's a lot of things at play in pulling for our attention and pulling for us to, to choose a different path than God's best. That is the reality of the life in which we live. In a broken world and in a world that pushes so many other priorities. That's the lot we all have to face. 
And what we need is some spiritual deep friendships that can not only push you in good directions and celebrate with you, that can also come alongside and challenge you at times. And that was Nathan to David. And David responded to that and said, yes, we talk a lot about around here, this, this connected life is far greater than the surrounded life. We talk about e-groups and getting connected and, and living connected lives more so than just, okay, I come and I'm surrounded by a bunch of people. Because you can live your whole life surrounded by a bunch of people. And you could be less lonely, but you're really just surrounded by a bunch of people. And you don't have people, you don't open up your life to let people speak into you. Positive encouragement, celebrating with you, but also mourning with you when you need it, and then also challenging you at times where you need it. This is what Proverbs 27 says this, The wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And a lot of people, they have a lot of sweet talk. But even the wounds of a friend are trusted. They're meaningful. They're significant. And so do you have some Nathans in your life? Who could they be? Who can you be a Nathan to? What would it look like to begin to live out those kind of relationships? So in Psalm 51, David writes coming out of this experience. And there's a whole lot more to this story that you can read later. But in Psalm 51, we're kind of given some clues to this idea of repentance. I want to look at three different parts of repentance. And because I think... You need all three. Otherwise, it's just this notion of, of something less than what the Bible has to say about repentance. And then we'll move on with worship here. So in Psalm 51, here's what it says. Have mercy on me, O God. So David's recording this. You know, I don't know when he wrote these, after these words, or what's happening. But in coming out of this experience, he's writing these words. The whole chapter is about this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions are before you. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right when you judge, God. And in this moment, we see three different things. David's leaning into God's character, who he really is, what he's really like. He's not a mean ogre in the sky. He's not a policeman in the sky trying to catch you. He is a deeply loving, compassionate father who wants the best for you. And he made a way for you to have life with him by sending his son. He has deep, deep love. He also has holiness to him. In a sense that we are not like him. We are not buddy-buddy. But through Jesus, we can be a friend of God. That's why Jesus matters so much. Because he's the only way that makes that possible. Because God is so far beyond us. And so David's leaning into the character of who God is. And in that he's saying, against you and you only. In Hebrew, when you say a word twice. Remember when Jesus, uh, from a Hebrew tradition, remember? Jesus says to Martha, Martha, Martha. When you say a word twice, there's deeper meaning to that. We, don't, we miss that a little bit in our English language, but there's something that's, that's boiling up that's, that's deeply rooted. Against you and you only have I sinned. God, I'm owning the reality. I, I'm choosing with my will, my mind, and my heart. Here's the three parts. Your will. What are you measuring your life against? For a lot of us, it's psychology. But here's the problem with psychology. Psychology can tell you how things are. But psychology cannot speak to how things should be. 
And that's why the scriptures matter. The scriptures come along and say, speak to how things should be. The God who created everything speaks into how things should be, the best possible way to live life. And that's why when we measure ourselves against anything else but scripture, we can make it be anything we want. That's why a culture says, hey, just do what you want. The whole Jiminy Cricket thing. Let your conscience be your guide. Really? Serial killers use that same language, don't they? I think we want to be better than that, right? Like, that's silly, but it's true. So, in his will, he's going back and anchoring himself to the scriptures. And the scriptures of God saying, here's the best way to possibly live. And you blew it, David. You are the man. And David has to own that and say, God, wow, against you, your standard, you're the straight edge. And against you, I I got way off track here. And in that, David's at the lowest point he could be in life. Think about it. He's low. But the beautiful part of, of Psalm 51 is it doesn't end on that. It starts low, but it actually ends with redemption, recovery. And David speaks about this. So with his mind, he says, God, I'm measuring myself against you, and <laughs> wow, I blew it. Maybe the second part, his, his mind. He's choosing to own it. Do you notice in his response, there's no buts. God, you are right, but! Gotta be honest, it's tough being king. A lot of pressure. People talking to me all the time, all that kind of stuff. There's no buts in David's response. We like those responses because we use them all the time, right? Go back to the beginning of all of humanity. God sets a perfect condition. We say, no, God, we want to do it our way. We rebel. And then we go into what? Hiding. Humanity hides. Oh, man, I think we messed up. Hopefully God won't find us. Oh, hey, God, how you doing? Hey, um, I know I'm Adam, and you told me not to do that. But the woman you put here, you put her here. I didn't ask for her. You put her here, and she led me astray, right? And then the woman. Oh, whoa. (laughs) Okay, but the serpent that you created, I didn't create it. You created a God, and uh, he led me astray. And so, like, there's this blaming, right? You cannot blame your way to experiencing freedom. You can't. Part of this moment for David of stepping forward and saying, I'm going to own this, That was his first step toward freedom. That was his first step forward of saying, God, I got to own this. Not only am I, according to kind of the straight edge of scripture, I'm I'm off, and then now I got to own this. I got to take responsibility. I've got to own this. Here's the principle I wrote down. Learn to own your responsibility, then move forward trusting in God's reliability. Learn to own your responsibility. And then move forward trusting God's reliability. That's what David does in this moment. Against you. And you only, I've sinned. I'm owning it. I did it. And he's taking responsibility for that. Then he kind of goes on and he gets to this place for so many people. And a low point in life, we can see them become stuck and stay there, right? You've seen that. Maybe you've been there. You got to a low point and you got stuck and you stayed. And we've seen that with other people. And with David, he doesn't. How? How did he figure this 
out. He came to hate his sin, but not hate himself. David came to hate his sin and where it took him, but he didn't own that to hate himself. He knew I'm valuable to God because God pursues me. God chooses me. It's all coming from God anyway. So I will own it. I will acknowledge I'm off. And then this last one is I will begin to to feel what God's feeling. And here's what that means. The difference between repentance and self-pity is sometimes we go into self-pity when we think about all the consequences and all the things that are going to happen because I messed up. And if that's where your focus is, you're in self-pity because it's all about you in that moment. If you think about, okay, I broke God's law and now he's angry or that type of thing, it's still about self-pity because it's all still about you and how you feel. And repentance is this idea of God. You ever stopped and just ask yourself this question, ask God this question? God, I know I kind of blew it there. How did that make you feel? Have you ever asked that question? Because here's that's where you begin to get to this idea of godly repentance. It's what the scriptures say in Second uh, Corinthians chapter seven. It says this godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow beats people up, and it leaves them stuck in self pity. But godly repentance, godly sorrow. It's this idea of, God, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I, I fractured our relationship and the closeness that we can have in that. And I did that. And I don't want that anymore. And so David, the rest of the psalm, talks about, God, would you do a repairing work in me? Would you create in me a new heart that I will teach people your precepts? I will talk to people. I will sing your praises. Why can he come out of the depths? Because repentance is all about moving forward. It's not about staying stuck. It's saying, God, I'm going to own it. I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to trust in your reliability that your grace is enough. Jesus, you covered that. And you covered that for me. And yeah, I got to face consequences probably. And that's okay. You're going to be with me even in the midst of that. But this is about moving forward in my life. And so I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Uh, and we're going to continue in worship here a little bit and move into a time of communion. So if you're new, uh, that's what we're going to do. But tonight I want to create some space for you. You're welcome to take communion. And we have it uh, around the, the room here. But I want to give you some space and some time uh, to actually begin to practice what this is. God is not hindered by your past. He actually wants to propel you forward into a future and a destiny that's founded and grounded in Jesus. That this whole idea of repentance is something we can practice. That when we make mistakes and we make and we mess up, because the reality is you will, I will, and we'll have to own it. And in that moment, what we're practicing is what David put on display. Don't allow your mistakes and your, your mess-ups to get you stuck or sidelined. Allow them to point you back to a God who says, okay, here's the edge, and yeah, you're, you're off the path here. Will you own it? And will you allow us to work on this relationally? This isn't about religious duty. I've got to earn my way back to God. This is God saying, you can't do it anyway, but hey, I'm here. I love you. I sent my son. We're good. Let's just work on this communication. Let's work on this connection one to another. That's why a relationship with Jesus is so much about a relationship. 
And so here's the opportunity tonight. It's just to be thinking about where you are in life. Um, where are you in your part of life, your stage of life, your season of life? Where are you in this idea? Have you ever thought about repentance this way? Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and this is like, well, you know, I've known that, I've heard that. Well, are you practicing it? Because here's what I know is we have a tendency sometimes to just let things build up. And then we wonder why we're so cloudy in our communication and our connection with God. Maybe we've got some residue there that this practice of repentance can help you move forward. This is all about freedom. And freedom is about moving forward. So, Father, I pray that in these next moments as we worship you in song, as we um, take communion... Father, maybe we're here tonight and we just want to create some space to sit and to think and to contemplate about this. David was a man after your own heart. And if he can mess things up, then I can too. And that will be part of our journey. But Father, we want to be quick to respond. Quick to to acknowledge. Quick to, to say, God, would you help me here? Not quick to hide or quick to blame, quick to run, but to own it. So, Father, would you help us be a people, individually and as a church, that responds to you, that this whole idea of repentance, you'd make that part of our journey that leads us into taking our next steps with you, growing in intimacy in our relationship and our connection with you, Jesus. We thank you that you made it possible for us to even lean into repentance. Because Jesus, you're the one that took all the wrath of God that was deserving to us. You took it upon yourself. You paid the price. You paved the way. And we remember that tonight. Father, would you do a healing work within some of our hearts tonight? And as we worship you, would you allow your story of redemption, recovery to reignite within our hearts and our lives? We pray that in Jesus' name.